Hi, I'm Seth Roseman. I'm Jonathan Fuller. And welcome to No Experts Allowed, where we try to make the Bible less scary, more approachable, and a more consistent means of connecting with the divine. Each week, Seth and I alternate between two roles. The non-expert takes a look at a specific Bible story and prepares for a conversation about it centered around two questions. What's the story and what's the point? Meanwhile, the storyteller joins in the conversation, reacting to the story as they hear it. Because the so-called experts aren't the only ones who can make meaning and sense of the Bible as we read it together. So if you're new to or exploring Christian faith, if you've been to seminary like us, if you want to know more about the Bible but don't want to hear another sermon, or if you're anywhere in between, this podcast is for you. Join us and let's tell a good story today. Hello, Jonathan. How are you? Seth, I am better now that I am with you. How are you, my friend? I'm great. I was just trying to come up with a greeting where I didn't have to say the time of the day. So then it was applicable to any time. Good work. I appreciate it. I also really appreciate how formal we are at the beginning of our our podcast episodes with our nice greetings to one another and our checking in with each other, even though we've definitely been talking on either side of our recordings. But hey, it's all for the experience, right? Exactly. As always, I have a question for you. Oh, I am here for it. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you want Chick-fil-A to be open on Sunday or Chick-fil-A to name a sandwich after you? Oh, man. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The first reason that I'm torn is because I'm generally torn about Chick-fil-A. Same. There is a lot of things that they stand for, that they advocate for, particularly around the LGBTQ community, that are really problematic to me. And the chicken is so damn good. (laughs) And I hate that I'm saying that out loud, but it's the honest truth. So, if I had to, I think I would... I'm trying to think of the way I could be the most subversive... And I think it would be with the sandwich being named after me. Because that way, when people inevitably look up, well, who's Jonathan Fuller? And then they navigate through the, like, hundreds of them, because it's a relatively common name, and figure out who I am, I could maybe put out a positive message about how, like, hey, conversion therapy sucks, and Chick-fil-A supports that. We should get them to not do that anymore. Yeah, that's what I would, that's, I think what I would do is go with the sandwich to try to subvert the system that I hate and hate how much I love it. It's the worst. I have very similar feelings, both about Chick-fil-A and my kind of ambivalence to them. And I think I would also take the sandwich named after me. Just because I kind of think that would be neat. Your your reason is better than mine. (laughs) Well, it would also be kind of cool in a national chain to have a sandwich named after you. But the question is, what would be on your sandwich named after you? Oh, man, that's a great question. I'm assuming chicken. Yeah, definitely chicken. Okay. Do you remember, this is going back, do you remember 
when KFC, their competitor, had a sandwich called the Double Down. I do. I never had one, but I wanted one. And now I kind of want one now. <laughs> well, for our listeners, the Double Down was... I guess I guess it was a sandwich. They replaced the the bread with pieces of chicken, and then in the middle was just cheese and bacon. That would be the oh Seth gosh. Roseman supreme sandwich. Yeah, that is that is a good question though, because there's so much fierce debate about how a hot dog is or is not a sandwich, and part of the definition of a sandwich is bread. So, does chicken functioning as bread make it a sandwich? I, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know either. I do think a hot dog is a sandwich, just for the record. I think it depends on the state of the bun. That's the... <laughs> <laughs> if the bun is still intact, like, you know, folded open, but it's still connected on the other side, not a sandwich. If it's disconnected, then it is a sandwich. What would we're off topic? What would you classify it as if the bun is still connected? I if don't bread on three sides. <laughs> it's like a, a meat cul de sac or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I feel like uh, we got it. We got to move to the scripture. To I think try so. And, try I think and... so too. Uh, and we do know that Chick fil A is the holiest of fast food restaurant so maybe it will make an appearance in the scripture today can i read it for us that'd be great okay this is coming from isaiah chapter 56 beginning in verse 1 the lord said be honest and fair soon i will come to save you my saving power will be seen everywhere on earth i will bless everyone who respects the sabbath and refuses to do wrong Foreigners who worship me must not say, The Lord won't let us be part of his people. Men who are unable to become fathers must no longer say, We are dried up trees. To them I, the Lord, say, Respect the Sabbath, obey me completely, and keep our agreement. Then I will set up monuments in my temple with your names written on them. This will be much better than having children, because these monuments will stand there forever. Foreigners will follow me. They will love me and worship in my name. They will respect the Sabbath and keep our agreement. All right, so Seth, you went with a new version for us this week. Why did you choose the contemporary English version? So I picked the C-E-V, not to be confused with the C-E-B, because... Honestly, it's like there's too many there's too many acronyms, but the CEV is like the CEB on steroids. Okay. So to explain that a little bit more, their main focus is on readability and just trying trying to get rid of kind of those words that are, that are biblish. So in our text today, now we see men who are unable to become fathers. And most translations just render that eunuchs. But, like, when have you ever heard about a eunuch other than when you're talking about the Bible, usually mm-hmm. in Acts, right? The story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Right. So they're, they're trying to askew that language um, in favor of one that's just more, more understandable. 
And frankly, one thing I like about the CEV is it's geared intentionally at a reading level that's just really accessible to like kids and adults and everybody in, in between. So I thought it was good uh, to see something that was that was maybe less technical than what we've been reading and also uh, something that's new. Is there anything that you noticed when you were reading that you thought, well, that's interesting or, oh, I have a question about that or anything along those lines? Yeah, clearly a very strong em emphasis on the Sabbath that seems to be the crux of all this. And I imagine that's the connection to Chick-fil-A. And I will also contend, and I will do this with anybody beyond this podcast too, that as a business, being closed on Sunday is not honoring the Sabbath. It's increasing demand, which makes you more money Monday through Saturday. Uh, so I don't really believe a corporation can have religious values, but that's kind of beside the point. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not giving up on this one. I think that the, the piece that stood out to me was verse 5 about the monuments in the temple with your names written on them. This will be much better than having children because these monuments will stand there forever. And, I don't know, monuments are... That word just triggered a lot in me right now, especially living near Richmond, Virginia, which is, has some of the most prominent, uh, prominent Confederate monuments and memorials, being the former capital of the Confederacy and thinking about monuments that will stand forever. You, know, you, you view these gargantuan iron statues and see all the work that it's taken to take several of them down, which has happened over the past several weeks, and thinking about, I don't know that a monument could be more permanent than what was just there, and that's been taken down. So thinking about a permanent monument, one that will stand forever, in God's temple it's just a real image of honor and celebration and the fact that that's connected specifically to the Sabbath as part of your relationship with God so interesting to me I'm sure you have more to say about that though another thing that I think is fascinating is how these monuments are lasting I also think there's a certain irony that we, that we see in the, the Ten Commandments, this prohibition of making images of God. And then the Lord says in Isaiah, I will make a monument of you. I think that's so fascinating. We, you know, on one hand, we see that we can't, can't image God. That would be limiting in some way. But God can make monuments of us, make something lasting. Something that lasts longer than children. I think that's fascinating to me. What a line. Yeah. But yeah, I think in a day and time that is far more sensitive to issues of fertility and childbearing, uh, the rendering of this passage, the way it is, as you mentioned, away from eunuchs and talking specifically about what the implications of that state for becoming a father this passage also rings true in a really different way for certain readers for whom 
having children might be a struggle or a longing that they haven't been able to meet. And I could see this being read in many different ways because of that. But I think thinking about a comfort that goes beyond that longing, a, a legacy even that goes beyond that longing, at least could be for some folks experiencing that struggle, something that is really powerful. I think both historically and unfortunately contemporarily there's an othering of people both men and women who can't have children like it just seems like that that is the societal expectation is for people to have kids so it's fascinating to see that's not something that would prevent someone from having a monument made to them Right. In fact, that would having a monument is much better than having children because the monuments stand forever. So you mentioned how those who are unable to have children are often othered. I think that theme is pervasive in this passage because of the numbers of times that foreigners are mentioned. Um, I don't love that word specifically, but it, it does ring true, again, as we talked about last week, that... The people of Israel were intended to draw the circle wide, to quote the song, that God did not save and redeem them for themselves, but so that the divine light could shine through them to invite all the world into a healing, restoring relationship with God. And so the fact that that invitation is reiterated throughout here is really powerful and I think speaks to the story and prophecy being one that is hopeful and points to kind of a new reality that is free from some of this othering, some of this exclusion. Was there anything else about the story of this text that you dug into? Yeah, I think on one of our past episodes when we talked about Isaiah, we sketched a little bit of kind of its structure, that there's first, second, and then most scholars have a third Isaiah. This is the very beginning of the third person who kind of constructs the book of Isaiah. And most scholars think that this section is written after, almost immediately after the, the people have returned from exile. So they just got back to the promised land. And it, if you're kind of familiar with the biblical story, Ezra and Nehemiah probably hasn't even happened yet. If you know that part of the story, that's later. So this is like they've just gotten back. Wow. And there's people who are living in the land that they used to live on. Right. right who, are, who are other, if I can say it that way, who would be kind of foreigners to them. So I think right. part of this is to see those people as brought in to this larger story of Israel and what's happening to them. Yeah, and for and that that's helpful in shedding some light on some of the emphases here too. You know, not only are there foreigners in the land that they're returning to, I think some of their own people have become what previous generations would have defined foreigners because they were living in a faraway land. And as they're coming back, their people might look different. And the emphasis on the Sabbath, too, as a really key religious and cultural practice 
in the restoration of a people group to their land, those kinds of practices would be really emphasized. And so this kind of unification and reestablishment of some of the core practices of Israel's faith and culture and really existence as a community together with this notion of drawing more people in together and establishing really a new community and the fact that they're talking about permanence in the temple with these monuments as they're coming back and maybe some of them for the first time or you know generations that have descended from those who were exiled are seeing their temple in ruins after being destroyed that image is a really powerful contrast i think you're exactly right about that image about monuments something that stands forever would would be so empowering for people who see a temple that's destroyed and i think this this idea that we can hold on to the sabbath that can be its own pillar its own kind of sort of active participatory temple that that can't be destroyed in the way some physical building can be in the way like structures can be torn down monuments in richmond can be deconstructed and moved away we see in the sabbath something that that can be permanent almost Hmm. is there anything else that we think oh that's interesting or are we ready to move to what's the point I think I'm ready if you are. I think I'm ready. We've talked about this theme before, and maybe even a lot on this podcast, but I've been asking the fundamental question, who are the people that the church otherizes? Who are the people who don't belong? Who are the people who might say, the Lord won't let us be part of his people? Mm. Yeah, that's a really powerful phrase in there that just kind of hits me in the face. <laughs> I think sometimes that question seems so broad. You just, like, I I ask it of myself, and then I just go, I don't even know where to start. Which I think is ta- unfortunately telling. Right. Because you and I have had the privilege of existing in spaces where our identities and our vocations and our leadership and our exercising of gifts in different ways has been not only allowed but often celebrated and the experience of the lord won't let us be part of his people is so unheard of for you and me and i don't want to correct me if i'm wrong i don't want to speak for you but like i i believe that's true of your experience with the church yeah, that's correct. And as a seminarian, I've done some supply preaching, and it's like the exact opposite of this. It's quite fascinating. Like, oh, it's I often, know. It's often when a church's pastor goes on vacation or something, and they need someone to preach, and they get someone from the seminary, and it's not, oh, you know, we won't let you be part of our congregation. They're like, oh, I'm so glad that you're here, and we have a pastor this week. That's wonderful. So my experience is is that of like almost intense privilege. But if we're honest with ourselves, even the people who are privileged can see. If we can see the sign of the times, maybe, we can see that some people aren't as accepted. 
I can see some people are kept out. And there's all different kinds of ways. Maybe we can talk about some of those, but like, I just think the churches that I've been a part of have largely, like people have largely dressed up and worn their Sunday best. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that, that subtly or not subtly keeps people away. Right. Some people just simply don't have a suit to wear to church on Sunday or nice dress clothes. Like that that's an expensive item to have on hand, right? Yeah. Yeah, and oftentimes too there's this there's this setting apart of the church experience from folks' lived experience too. And so oftentimes dressing in your Sunday best is a radical difference from the way that you're dressed and treated during your lived experience throughout the week. Um and in a lot of spaces, it's the opposite too. So the churches that are predominantly white that have more people in boardrooms and that work in, you know, jobs that require suits or, uh, more formal, formal dress. Those are the churches that are more casual and it all has to do with the culture and experience rather than an actual statement of inclusion uh, of, of how we welcome folks. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about the congregation where Abby and I worship. And you obviously haven't been in person for, you know, a few months now, several months now, a long time. I don't remember worshiping in person there. But we, our church actually sold our historic building in downtown Richmond a couple of years ago. And we now worship in a storefront in a part of town where uh, there is a pretty significant uh, unhoused population and our congregation is still predominantly if not exclusively white and there have been a number of encounters that have left me feeling really uncomfortable when someone who's unhoused comes into our worship service and expresses themselves in worship differently than those of us who gather there regularly might it also feels unusual in these times. We've had, I think there's only one time that I'm remembering while we were there coordinating the live stream service during quarantine that someone was trying to come in and seek help because they saw people in a storefront, but the storefront says church on the front of it. And they're like, I need help. And, you know, this moment where we're like, we're in the middle of a Facebook live stream. What do we do? And... He didn't, he didn't stay very long, um, but it still struck me as this moment of what do encounters like that for our neighbors who are housing insecure, who are experiencing poverty in other ways, what are those experiences doing that say to those who are on the outside of the church, the Lord won't let us be part of his people, even if it is the actions of God's people that make that experience as hurtful and and as excluding as it is. You touched on this just a little bit with your story, but I always think that one of the the kind of overlooked barriers is the location of our church. Mm. We build the church far away from where people live, and we just expect, well, everyone can drive to it. Of course, everyone can still get there. And that's quite obviously not the case. Not everyone can drive. Not everyone wants to drive. 
just the location of our church in general can exclude people. And especially sometimes we put them places where like they can't you can't even see the church and the signs kind of hidden. If that makes sense. I'm thinking of right. New York. You you can drive by and the signs there, but there's a there's like a small hill and then behind it is the church building. You could easily drive by and miss that church and and never even think, oh, maybe like maybe that's something worth checking out. Like we do all these things that are subtle. There are subtle ways that we keep people out, but there are also unfortunately less subtle ways that we keep people out too. Yeah, and I was going to say some of those less subtle ways yeah. are far more intentional too. You know, and I think a lot of the decisions for congregations over the last 50 years or so to move out of these historic churches in downtown city areas into the suburbs, into these campuses that, you know, are in former farmlands that now have, you know, parking lots and community centers, but are truly only accessible to those that can afford the car and have access to a driver's license or someone who can drive them to get there. You know, even you know, even the experience of privilege in the United States of the typical work week, or maybe I shouldn't say typical, but like the the white collar work week, not including Sundays most of the time, and the the privilege that Christians in this country experience, especially Christians of a certain social class, that their religious day is. <laughs> out of the rhythm of the predominant work week narrative but having services at that time may also exclude a lot of people from being able to participate because of the jobs that they're working at those times too and it seems so benign when you talk about the rationale for why those things happened um, most of the time. There have been times where the church has been intentionally exclusionary and racist, sexist, xenophobic, homophobic, all the phobias that have to do with people that have fueled so many decisions that they guise under some theological pretense but are really just rooted in, in fear and hatred. But there are so many decisions, like the, the continuation of our holy day, of the Sabbath that we see honored here, as this rule about a particular day of the week rather than a mindset and mentality and recognition that the earth is God's and everything in it. So maybe you then think about if you change who you exclude then, and I, I, I think I'm just being non-creative, but my instinct is like no matter what you try and do, I feel like there's going to be someone that's excluded. And is the church supposed to be all things to all people? Or... Is it supposed to be responsive to the needs of its particular community? Is it supposed to meet these guidelines that feel unwritten but are somehow met by every church that worships together at 9 and 11 on a Sunday morning? Um, I don't know. It, this is a, a really intriguing conversation that brings us back to this theme that, as you mentioned, we've visited a number of times in our podcast episodes of God being the God who recognizes and honors and dignifies and builds monuments for the people that the church, that the people of Israel 
have pushed to the outside and have tried to exclude and forget. And God is trying to tell a different story. And you were preaching there. Sorry. <laughs> no, when somebody starts preaching, you just have to you just have to let them go. You can't. I don't know if that's true. Sometimes I sometimes I need to be stopped. There's this pernicious cycle where people who are otherized don't come. So then the church doesn't think about them. We don't make decisions that would bring them in. And then because we don't make decisions that bring them in, they're, they're not there. And then because they're not there, we never have any impetus to make decisions and think about them that might bring them in. It's like this vicious cycle. And I'm wondering also in what ways virtual worship helps and hurts that. You talked about the church being all things to all people. Or do we, do we minister to this particular context? And when we minister to a particular context, it intentionally or, or otherwise excludes some people. I think our attempts at virtual, online, whatever you want to call it, digital worship has done some of that too. Oh, absolutely it does. And a lot of it comes down to the question of what do we do church for? Who do we do church for? And if we are thinking about preserving the connection between people who are already connected, and I I hesitate to use the word preserving there because I think even in some things that I've said, it gives it a negative connotation. But like creating connection in a really isolating time is a really important thing to be thinking about. If you're if you're doing that, are you even further precluding the opportunity to maybe reach someone new who might be open to watching a Facebook Live video or joining a Zoom conversation right now when they would never set foot in a church building? Um, and at the same time, if you completely leave all your people behind to try to constantly reach new people through new platforms and try all the new things, are you really responding to the needs of your community or are you just functioning in a way that will force you to spin round and round and round until you inevitably get tired and burn out just out of an effort to perform your way through an unprecedented experience in our world and in our lives. I guess the good news from our passage is that in God's kingdom, there are these inclusion-exclusion paradigms that we keep talking about. In God, some people don't have to be excluded for other people to be included. Mm. Like there's there's enough room in God for everyone. Yeah, and it's that it's that downfall of the word inclusion, right? Is that it implies that there will be exclusion. It almost it almost necessitates it because you can't can't be included for something if there isn't also an opportunity for exclusion. And yeah, the reign and realm of God just kind of busts that paradigm wide open. And it's not talking about who gets to sit at the limited number of seats at the table, but how big of a table can we find and cram in here? Make sure everyone's got a spot. 
who how many people get to eat the Jonathan Fuller chicken sandwich? <laughs> I don't know. Hopefully, more than eat yours though, because if, if they're eating the yeah. Seth the Seth Roseman double down, uh, they're not going to be there for very long. <laughs> oh man, I think we need to pray. Will you pray for us? Yeah, let, let's double down on the prayer. Oh man, come on. Oh, I both hate that and respect it so much. Welcoming God. In you, no one is excluded, rejected, or turned away. Empower us to live radically inclusive lives, welcoming people not like us, but loved by you. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, who became one of us so that we might be included in you. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Jonathan, what story are we telling next week? We are going to take a look at Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 33 through 38. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Seth. Thanks for helping me tell it.